Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. We have the lame man healed. And that was healed to do what? To validate the message of Peter that he was about to preach. Peter's message was about the person and work of Christ. And he hit them right between the eyes. Right? He didn't beat around the bush, which is which is a good thing. You know, you ever you ever try to talk to somebody who's beating around the bush? They never do get around to what they're gonna tell you. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, Peter didn't beat around the bush. He basically told the Jews or the people that listened to him that, you know, you killed your own Messiah. You crucified the Lord of glory. And if you don't repent on him, which is say in verse 22, um, every soul not hear the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. If you don't listen to the message of the gospel, if you don't believe in Christ, you're going to be utterly destroyed. And it says, your sons are the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Um, it was very important to understand that God gave the truth or the, the original covenant to Israel, right? Did that mean all the Israelites were saved? No. No, the blessing of God went to the nation, but in order for you to partake of that blessing, you had to believe. You had to believe. How many people who went through the wilderness do you think were redeemed? Two, two of them. Yeah. <laughs> two. Well, we know of two, right? Caleb and Joshua. There are probably a few others. Yeah. But many died in unbelief, right? A lot died in unbelief. And, of course, ones who were swallowed up, you know where they were swallowed up to. That's that's a no-brainer. Um but but the point is, just because you're part of Israel doesn't mean you're in. And one of the things that, again, very, and we talked about this last three or four weeks, is one of the problems that the Israelites had is their concept that if they were a Jew, they're in. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. If I'm a Jew, I go to heaven because I'm part of God's people. It doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter whether I even believe or not. I'm going to heaven. If I got the physical act of circumcision, if I'm a Jew, I'm in. I'm good. But you were saying uh, for that time period in history, there wasn't a whole lot to believe. There wasn't a whole lot to believe, but they based their their faith, their 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 um, eternal life on their national identification. It had nothing to do with whether they believed the Messiah or not. It had nothing to do technically whether they believed or followed the law or not. It all had to do with whether they were a Jew or not. The following the law, you got to understand, the following the law business was not, the Pharisees were not saying, if you do this, you're going to get eternal life. They said, if you do this, you're going to be wealthy, you're going to be, it, it was for a, how do you put it? It's for your reward. It's for a reward. You go back and look at the rabbinical writings. Many rabbinical writings talk about Abraham sits before the gates of hell and will not allow a circumcised Jew to enter. If, and remember the big argument that Christ had with the, with the Pharisees in that in, in John 8? He says, 
you know, we said, well, we know who our father is. We're Abraham. We don't know who your father is. Mm-hmm. And Christ said, I could, you know, God can take stones and make children of Abraham. Just because you're a child of Abraham doesn't mean you're one of the elect. You're one of the promised. Just because you're a Jew doesn't mean you're automatically in. But they believe that. They, they believe there's a national. They, they place their faith. If you ask the average Pharisee, why are you going to heaven? I'm a child of Abraham. Mm-hmm. I have the law and I've been circumcised. I'm in. Now, you ask the average Catholic, why do you think you're going to heaven? I've been baptized. I go to the mass. I'm not a Protestant. I'm in. All right. Now, they, you know, they, they have this iffy thing with the whole purgatory business. But provided you die without a mortal sin on you, you, you know, you might, it might take a few billion years of working it off in purgatory, but you eventually get to heaven. But it's faced so, in your pedigree. Then you become a Mormon. <laughs> and, then, and then you can pray, and your aunt, you can pray for your ancestors. ancestors. Yeah, I get them in heaven. They pray. Um, they, they, that knocks off some years of purgatory. Right. You know. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I, I remember going to Notre Dame Cathedral in France, Paris, France, and and seeing hundreds and thousands of burning candles. And and for for one euro you get a you get a little tea light candle for five euros you can get a little bit bigger candle, and you you light that in in memory of some relative or whatever, and you can knock a few hundred years or thousand years off their purgatory sentence. Mm-hmm. Right. Huh? He said he does it all the time. Okay, that's <laughs> but but Peter basically hits them between the eyes and, and brings them face to face with the person and work of Christ, who he is, what he did. They crucified their Lord of glory. And how were they to be converted? Verse 19, repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. The whole idea of repentance here is agreeing with God. Yes, what Jesus is the Son of God. He did die for my sins. I am a sinner. I am under God's judgment. That is how you believe. And it says in chapter 4, see we made it to chapter 4. As they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed. They taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Why would they be so upset about that? Well, number one, they killed Christ. But look, you know, I get really annoyed when when you got these TV specials and they come on all the time. Talking about, you know, can we really believe that Jesus rose again from the dead and blah, 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 blah. You know, they cast down on the resurrection. All right. Look, what did these guys have to do to stop the preaching right then? No. Go down to the tomb and produce the body. You're you're a lawyer, habeas corpus, or where it is, you know. What is that? Where's the body? You know, or whatever. You know, all they had to do was go down, roll the stone away, and say, "There he is." And Christianity's done for, right? Yeah. And by the way, how long how long after the resurrection did this did this preaching take place? Fifty days, fifty sixty days, somewhere around in there. I mean, this was not this was not uh, two hundred years. It was so you know you could go down to the rotting body and pull a bone out or something. Say, Here he is. This is your Messiah. This is the one you say rose again from the dead. Why couldn't they do that? There was no body. Which begs the question is, what are these idiots thinking? You ever stop and think about that? 
You say, okay, now wait a minute. Okay, they're saying Jesus rose from the dead. You have no body. They're doing miracles, and your conclusion is they're of the devil. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Threaten their lifestyle. That's it. Threaten their lifestyle. Okay, and here's 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 what you got to understand about unbelief. Unbelief will blind you to the truth. And unbelief is a refusal to believe. It's not that, well, if they just had a little bit more evidence, they would have believed. No, no, it doesn't work that way. Right? What was the Israelite problem in the wilderness? Lack of evidence? No. Let's see. All right. We remember. Okay. We got the moraine. We got the darkness. We got the firstborn. We got the river turning the blood. Oh, well, that's that Red Sea thing. Remember that, you know, they dry it. And, and now we're up in the mountain. It's thundering. It's like Moses comes down glowing like a light bulb. They didn't have a light bulb back then. And we got this water in the desert and manna. And, uh, you know, God brought us out here to kill us. That's what he did. And the, and the problem is they refused to believe. There was a refusal. It was an act of the will not to believe. And what we need to understand today, folks, is that people exercise their will not to believe. I listened to some joker on Fox News. I know I shouldn't be doing that as much as I should, but um, oh, what is his name? It was Bill Mayer or somebody else, I think. And he was talking about, it was last night. He was on um, O'Reilly last night. And he was talking about how he thinks all religion is psychosis. It's a you know people who are who are religious are psychotic you know they're nuts they're nut jobs and everybody yeah um, Bill Mayer or somebody like that it was Bill Mayer or somebody I think it was him or it was somebody else but um you know he he was just you know I'm sitting there thinking so so you know you look at your own hand and you see the the wonder and the intricacy of that of that construct and you assume that just some amoebas decided that would be a good idea. Why do they believe that? Because they suppress the truth. They don't want to believe. The problem with the Pharisees and Sadducees here is not that they didn't have evidence. They had all the evidence in the world. They had watched Jesus. Some of these probably watched him heal people, raise people from the dead. I mean, stop and think about it. Christ raises Lazarus from the dead. And what's the first thing they want to do? Let's kill him. Because they were, they were so intractable in their unbelief that they refused to believe if God came down personally and appeared to them, they would refuse to believe it. And he was so gently usurping their authority. Too. They refused. It was an issue of authority. It was their turf. And so what are they trying to do to Peter and John? Shut them up. And I said they laid hands on them, put them on custody until the next day, if it was already evening, um, they didn't really have jails in those times. But you could put people in custody overnight until they could be heard by a court. So they grabbed these, and there was a there was such a thing called the temple police. Um, the Israelites had a a temple guard that um, that was able to police the temple, and they had certain privileges granted them by Rome. And they arrested Peter and John and put them in custody until the next day. Um, However, it says here, many of those who heard the word believed, the number of men came to be about 5,000. How's that for a altar call? Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm looking at verse um, 3, I mean, chapter 3, verse 17, and basically what Peter was telling them, you know, he preached in the temple, and then he turned around and he told them that it's 
they did all of that to Jesus because of, in 17 it said because of their ignorance. Yes. So they they was not aware of because ignorance means you're not aware of what you're well. When it says that they did it in ignorance, does that mean that every single one of them were ignorant? I mean, it says you and your group. All of them. Was every single one of them ignorant of who Jesus was? There's a general ignorance, and then there's an individual ignorance. Yeah. I don't think you can make the case that every single one of them had no clue as to who Jesus was. He had raised the dead. I mean, he did all of these miracles. Now, here, here you can make this state. Here's, here's the thing to understand. This goes into this election business. Mm -hmm. If God does not open your mind and your heart to see, you won't see. So that's what the agency is right here, right? Yeah. God didn't. God did not interfere. So if God does not interfere, what conclusion does mankind come to? Always. Unbelief. The wrong one. Yeah. They will never believe. If God does not interfere. Why is it that all of you in here, hopefully, all of you in here are believers? Why? Because God opens your mind. At some point, uh, at some point, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, you ever had a light go on? Oh, now I understand. Well, that wasn't because of your great intellectual abilities. It was because God opened your heart. But if God had not opened your heart, where would you be? You'd be in unbelief. So, and, and that's the thing to understand. If God does not intervene, people go into unbelief. Nevertheless, it is their fault they are in unbelief. They are held accountable for their unbelief. And if you say that's not fair, we realize it's not fair that God saves anyone. The fair thing is just let us all go to hell and be done with it. Yeah. So how do you reconcile God created us? He created us with a wicked heart and unbelief. He didn't create your wicked heart and unbelief. He didn't create unbelief. God did not create sin. He allowed it. He allowed its existence. And, and, and he allowed its existence because by definition, what is sin? Sin is an act of the will. Of a being that has the ability to make a choice. What did Satan choose? His choice was, I don't want to be around a throne, you know, glory, holy, holy, holy. I want to sit on the throne. I want somebody to give me accolades. And it was his pride. It was his pride. It was it was him exalting his will over that of God that caused the first sin. And then it was Adam who believed Eve rather than God. It was an act of the will. It was a choice. It's like if you create light, the opposite of light is not light. It's dark. You don't make the darkness. It's there. God didn't create evil, but by definition of allowing a choice, there had to be the allowance of a not choice. And, and even then you don't understand it. Even then we don't fully comprehend it. You know, but but these people are in unbelief. And it came to pass on the next day that the rulers, elders, and scribes, Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as of the family of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. 
and they set them in, in the midst, they ask, by what power, by what name have you done this? So all the religious muckety-mucks get them together and ask them, why, you know, why are you doing this? Now, you got to understand something about Annas and Caiaphas. They, they were two scoundrels. And I can't remember which one was the father-in-law and which one was the son-in-law. I think Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, if I remember correctly. Um, but they were related. They were, they were blood relatives. And in those days, the high priesthood was held by the family of Annas. They sort of, they sort of took terms of being high priest each. It was, it was a ceremonial sort of position. It was, they were the aristocrats. They were the wealthy because they ran the temple concessions. They made money on the temple sacrifices and the money changers. That's how they made their wealth. And, um, huh? They were Levites? Um, yeah, they were of the Levites. They would have to be of Levites. But uh, what they had done is they had purchased the high priesthood. Basically, Rome allowed them to pay them a bribe in order to name them as high priest. All right. Um, that started back in 150 A.D. with John Hyrcanus. Um, but the Romans, you basically bought your high priesthood. Um, by, And that's why they were wealthy, because they bought it. And it was in their interest to keep everything running smooth, right? I mean, as long as the Romans are in charge, we're fat cats, we're doing fine. You know, if this up, apple cart gets upturned, you know, we might lose out. We might lose our money. We might lose our positions of authority. <coughs> and remember, that's what Ananias, uh, that's what Ananias said when he says, better that one man die than the Romans come in and take away our place in our country. Christ was on the verge of causing, causing some... Um, I, if I chew that, I just, got, I just swallowed something in the wrong pipe there. See, I talk too much. Um, but but it, it was a family affair, and it was in their interest to keep things going. And if you got Peter and John in there talking about raising Jesus, Jesus raising again from the dead, who killed them? Who was, whose fault was it that Jesus was crucified? They're the ones that railroaded him. So they've got a potential insurrection on their hand, don't they? And they want to squelch that real quick because if they don't, might not be good. And Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said to them, and then he he basically preached. I'm not going to go through this because of our time, but he basically tells them the same thing, right? You killed the Messiah. The stone which the builders rejected is the head of the corner. You guys killed your own Messiah. And then there's that famous verse in 4.12. There's neither nor is there salvation any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. In the name of who? Jesus. What does the name mean? All that the person is, his person and work of Christ. You're not saved in any other name but his name. And in verse 13, they marveled because these guys were supposedly ignorant, right? Untrained. They didn't go to the... Here's, here's what it means by that. What it means by that is they did not have the official stamp of the religious hierarchy. They had not gone to any of the accepted pharisaical schools. So in their mind, these guys didn't know anything. And uh, just, just so you understand, there's a certain pomposity to human wisdom, isn't there? Who are the people that you listen to 
on TV. The experts or the ones with a bunch of letters after their name. There's a real funny show. I saw only part of it. What's the one where Dolly Parton goes into the city and becomes this talk show? What is that? So it's funny, but she's basically a divorce. No, that's not it. She she goes into the city there and she doesn't have any money. She's she's almost broke, and she she shows up at this radio station. Somehow she gets on the air and it's a call-in talk show on relationships. And she's just this hick from Nowheresville. And she becomes the latest rage in the town because she's just, yeah, she's just telling, you know, common sense. She doesn't have any education, doesn't have any PhDs, just common sense. Yeah, it's, I forget the name of it. It's, a, it's sort of a funny show. Um, but the problem with the Pharisees here say, wait a minute, they didn't attend our schools. How do they know all of this stuff? They don't have any degrees. And humanity, there's a certain pomposity we have with education. And the problem is the more educated they are, the stupider you become. Unless unless you're in my class, in which case, no. But, but, but in the average university out there, you look at the average university, the people that wind up from those universities, they have all the questions. They don't have any answers. They have knowledge, but no wisdom. Yeah. I was in a philosophy class, and, and the whole philosophy class at Oberlin College was, you know, on the meaning of the life, the universe, and everything. Sort of like with that uh, um, Adam's book, you know, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. He also wrote The Life, the Universe, and Everything. And, and it's all about, you know, why are we here? What are we going? And, and he, he raised all these questions, and yak, yak, yak. And I'm sitting there saying, I, I know why I'm here. I, I know where I'm going. I know where I came from. Well, class is over, right? If you've got those answers, why do you need to go listen to what Soren Kierkegaard thinks about it and what Immanuel Kant thinks about it and what David Hume thinks about it? Who cares, right? Straight Talk. Straight Talk. That's the name of that show, that movie, Straight Talk. Straight Talk. That's right. But, but he, class is over if you got those answers. And these Pharisees are sitting there scratching and saying, where did these guys get all of their knowledge? They're unlearned. They didn't go to any of our accepted universities. We don't remember them going through the, you know, the diploma line. We didn't shake their hand. They don't have the stamp of uh, the official stamp of Jerusalem Council on them. Well, where did they get it? Jesus didn't have it either. They came from the Holy Spirit. So what do we do? We can't, we can't deny the miracle, verse 16. What do we do? So what they do? They told him not to speak in the name of Christ. And what was Peter's response? Boil down, we ought to obey God rather than men. So there's the question for you. Who, who are you more afraid of, God or man? I'm afraid of You know, a lot of people, when they preach, they say, well, I don't want to say this because it will offend people. Who do you want to offend? you want to offend people or God? Right? God says, okay, here's the message. Here's the gospel. Preach it. You say, well, you know, I, don't, I better not say that, Father, because, you know, that will really get this guy upset. And if I really talk about sin, that's the S word. We don't want to use that. We want to water it down, make people feel good. You know, don't want to talk about And repentance, you know, come on. We need to have just a meaningful relationship. Everybody's sort of seeking God. We're all going to wind up there. Does it work that way? So. God is saying, this is my word. 
Now, we don't want to be abrasive, but look, don't water it down. Don't take the elements out of it. Don't don't try to water it down and make it acceptable to people because you might hurt their feelings. Or as Bob Schuler said, he said, one of the worst things you could do is tell somebody they're a sinner. What? Oh, yeah. Self-esteem, the New Reformation, read his book. He said one of the worst things that anybody could do is what these evangelical Christians do is telling people they're a sinner. That that really is a slam against your self-worth and self-esteem. Isn't his son preaching? I don't know if he is or not. There, yeah, I think I think he is. I think I think it is. Bob Shore, he's he's another piece of work. Um, but the whole point is if you if you deny if you deny that you're a sinner, what have you just done? What do you need what do you need Christ for, right? In fact, what Bob Schuler says is hell is a state of low self-esteem and Christ came to save you from your low self-esteem. I'm not making that up. That's what he said in his book. Self-esteem, the new reformation by Bob Schuler. Oh, good night. Don't tell me it's Bishop Spawn. Yeah. But, um, yeah. And what they did is they threatened... Now, what did the Sanhedrin do? They threatened these guys to let them go, but they didn't really do anything because the crowd was there. And look, you have a guy running around who was a leper, or not a leper, but a crippled all his life. You have 5,000 new believers. You know, let's bide our time. Let's bide our time. But listen, they were not happy, and they did not believe, did they? Were there some that believed? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Not a lot, but there were some. Okay. In verse 23, they went out, and, and you have this prayer here in verse 23 through 31, where they were praying for boldness. And this is the interesting thing here. And I don't want to, again, if we, if we spend our time going through every verse, we're never going to get through Acts. But here's the big picture. What were they praising God for? Now stop and think about it. The average person in your church who gets arrested for preaching the gospel is hauled into court threatened, browbeat by the judge, all right, and told not to preach, comes in to the prayer meeting the next Sunday or next Wednesday, what's he going to pr ask prayer for? Not your average person. Huh? You're telling me the average Christian is going to pray for that? When the average Christian is persecuted, what do they pray for? Deliverance. Deliverance. When the average Christian is facing a crisis, what do they pray for? Get me out of this mess. No. The, I'm, I'm, I'm not making it up. Go listen to your own prayer meetings. What are people praying for? Yeah. Sickness, disease, somebody's yeah. got a financial crisis, this person's got a hurt, you know, this person's got gout, this person's depressed, you know. Nobody's praying for somebody to be saved usually. They're not talking about that. It's all about me, 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 comfort, that kind of stuff. What did these guys, these guys, it didn't matter what situation they're in. That's the point. The point is in the early church, it didn't... Paul did not spend his entire life praying to get out of jams. He, he assumed that being a Christian meant he was going to be in jams. 
He assumed that being a Christian meant he was going to be persecuted and people weren't going to like him and he was going to be beaten and he was going to go to jail. That was his assumption. And so when it happened, it wasn't a surprise to him. It wasn't a shock. Well, he sort of knew that because he Lord told him to, but, but as Christian, what did Christ say? If you, in, in John 15, you think they're going to treat the servant better than the master? If they beat me, what are they going to do to you? If they hate me, what are they going to do to you? Now, again, make sure. He knew it. But here's the point. Here's the point. The other lie that we have been fed constantly on television and radio is that if you're a Christian and you're having a rough time, it's because you don't have faith. It's abnormal. You should be walking on top of everything. You should be on top of the world. Everything should be going well for you. And if you're suffering persecution or you're sick or you have some disease or you have some um, crisis in your life, you just don't lack. You just lack faith. You don't have enough faith. It's your fault. You sin. It's not. And here's the point. The point is underlying that entire discussion is that being a Christian means it is abnormal to be in pain. And what does the Bible say? In the world, you should have tribulations. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Look, folks, part of being a Christian means it's not a tiptoe through the tulips. It's not. No. And Paul was not at all interested in necessarily being delivered from all of his. He didn't ask the church, now pray for me that I wouldn't, you know, that the jail, the next jail would be comfy for me. You know, it was not whatever situation he found himself in. That was just God's plan and purpose for him. Mm -hmm. And his constant prayer was wherever he was, mm -hmm. right. that he would be a testimony and a witness. And that's what you see with this prayer here. They're not praying that God would remove the persecution. They're rejoicing that they're being persecuted because that means they're right. Mm -hmm. John, I'm sorry, Don, you're going to say you say something, Don. Well, I understand that it's not going to be a bed of roses, but I think I also believe that for the strong and mature Christians, they are going to take whatever comes at them and look at it through God's eyes, right. God's perspective, whether it be, you know... Uh, Paul said, in whatever state I am, to be content. Works. It's like Paul. You know, it doesn't matter whether he's got it all or he has nothing. He is very happy with where he is mm -hmm. right now. He's very content because he's resting in the Lord. The problem is the average Christian today is, not there. is very much interested in their own comfort level. And when there's a least bit of pain or the least bit of discomfort, they, 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 they go spastic thinking that somehow... You know, I'm, I'm sinning or I should be getting blessings from God or things should be going well for me. And when they don't, they, they don't relate because they're taught or, or at least subconsciously they think that being a Christian means you have no trials. And that's not what the Bible teaches. Now, ultimately, we get it all, but we may not have it all down here. First Peter 414 18 tells you to evaluate why you're having the testing. Yeah. And in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 4, which is a good passage. First Peter 4, 2 Corinthians 4, 
I mean, just go go home and memorize first or chapter four of Second Corinthians. Memorize it. Yeah. You can do that. Second Corinthians chapter four. The whole one? Yeah. We have this treasure in a clay pot. Yeah. So if you have a clay pot full of gold, why is it valuable? Because What's in it? It's not because it's a clay pot. So if you're valuable, it's not because of you, right? You're just a clay pot. But what's in you? Christ. And it says this. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. In other words, I am being squeezed on every side, but I'm not what? I'm not crushed. Okay. He says here, um, we are perplexed, but not in despair. And I can't remember all of the words behind this, but some of these words means we're being chased like a dog is chasing a rabbit, but we've not been caught. We're down on the mat, but we've not been knocked out. Now, you look at this and you think, you know, this guy, you know, he's suffering some severe things. He needs Prozac or, you know, some therapy or something like that. Or a good lawyer. Or a good lawyer. Even, what's he saying? Paul is saying, when I am weak, then I am strong. He said, I am being crushed. I'm being perplexed. I'm being slapped around. I'm being beat down. But you know what? I'm not done for. Why? Because the power is not me, it's God in me. Folks, it's where you put your focus. That's, that's the whole point. And the whole point of this passage here in 4 is that when they came back from being, you know, slapped around by the Sanhedrin, they weren't all upset and, oh, what did we do wrong? Oh, maybe, we, you know, we should maybe preach Christ so directly. You know, maybe we should sneak it in the back way and sort of, you know, not be so direct about it. Because, you know, they got really upset, you know, and we really don't want to get them upset because that wouldn't be good for us. They didn't even worry about any of that, right? They weren't worried, they weren't worried about any of that. They were thrilled and happy and glad that they had the privilege of suffering for Christ. Now that's a different perspective than what you see from your average person in the church today. Who thinks that suffering is a bad thing. And I keep saying if Paul showed up at your average prayer meeting, he would throw up all over the floor <coughs> listening to some of the stuff that people pray for. They're so concerned about. And he's just like, you know, what... You know, you're, you're worrying about somebody laughing at you for carrying your Bible. You know, I got beat last week 39 times with a rod. And you're a little upset over here because, you know, you have a little tough financial time. Well, let me tell you something. I spent three days and three nights clinging to a board in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea and didn't know if I'd live or not. Yeah, you don't know what it's like. And by the way, I also got stoned, not drugs, but by getting hit by stones. And they threw me outside the city thinking I was dead. And I got revived and walked back in the city and picked up where I left off in my preaching. Look, folks. You know, if this is saying anything, it's saying, quit being a wuss. Quit being a spiritual wuss. Being a Christian means that things don't go your way. You may not... Walk on top of the world. Well, are there those times that you're on the mountain and everything's just wonderful? Yeah. But you know what? It's followed sometimes by a great valley, isn't it? Hey, welcome to Christianity. Welcome to fallenness. 
Welcome to this fallen world. Get on with it. And these people, they were thrilled that they could do that. And then it says, verse 32, it talked about the sharing that they had. They were just one big happy family. And as people had needs, what happened? Well, those who had money gave to the ones who needed, right? Do you do that in the average church today? No. Not all of them. Not all of them. Um, notice what it says here, as people had need. Yeah. What does that mean? What does that imply? That they were hungry. Yeah. This is physical necessity. Yeah. This is the sustenance. Not cell phone. Okay. Right. And, and, and now as believers, how should we, how should we treat those who are less fortunate? What should you do? Find out if they really are less fortunate to begin with. Find out if they're less fortunate. Yeah. If they're truly less fortunate, what do you do? You help them. You try to help them. Help themselves. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just like uh, love in the name of Christ. Yeah. Um, that's what we do. If people come to us with, for example, gas bills, we help them and try to pay it. But at the same time, if we find out that they've been spending the money on everything else and not, just not paying their bills, you know, we're not going to help them because well, you know what I'm trying to say. I know what you're trying to say. If, and if it's three months in arrears, no, why didn't you bring it the, the month the, the, that you, no, you couldn't? You're not doing a person a favor by deliberating, by contributing to their delinquency. No, you're not. You're not helping them out. Um, now, there may be a crisis situation where for one-time emergency, you help them out. But when they come back a second and a third time, you know what? But if they're a yeah. church member, faithful church member, you know their situation. And they are just waiting until the last minute to ask the church. Something. Yeah, I, I, knew a, I knew a person who went through a lot of families in this church. He never had money. Never able to make it. And his attitude was, you know, all for one, one for all. And since I don't have anything, I guess that works out well for me. And uh, he was he was lazy. He did not want to work. He did not want to earn a living. You know, and somehow it was always somebody else's problem. The Bible has words to say about that. Yeah, if you, a man does not work, eat. neither should he eat. All right. That's not being mean to them. That's that's what the Bible says. If you cannot work, then you need and, and there's a legitimate need. You should be aided. And that's what the church did here. This is not Christian communism. There are some people who want to read this and they get all excited about, well, this is Christian communism. You know, you sell it all, give it all to the elders of the church and they disperse it. And by the way, some Looney Tune pastors out there that believe this. They believe that they have control over, if you're a member of their church, they are the ones that can tell you what to spend your money on and what not to. All right, that's 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 silliness. That's that, those, run away from those people. Don't even go there. You know, if that's the only church in the hundred miles, get your own, make your make a church of your own. 
But don't even go there. Yeah. Well, there there are certain extenuating circumstances. There are certain certain extenuating circumstances, and this is one of them. This is one of them. And need to find a guy to preach to you too. All right. But but you need you need to stay away from that. This is not this is not talking about Christian communism here. What this is saying is that the people were so motivated by their love that when a need arose in the early church and somebody had an asset or had the wherewithal to provide it, they brought it to who? The apostles who distributed to the needs. Okay? According to the needs. Yeah. And uh, it said here, on verse 35, they laid at the apostles' feet and they distributed each as everyone had need. The apostles distributed the finances to those who were in need. And this is not talking about what? This is before the days of cable TV and all that kind of stuff. If somebody says, I can't pay my electric bill, but they got cable TV, they got a cell phone, they got a brand new home entertainment center sitting in their corner, look, it's time for them to learn to pay the piper on that. All right. You just don't, and you don't, you don't even go there. And that's why, that's why I really believe this. Just, just as an aside, that's why government-sponsored social services are failure because there's no accountability. All right, there's no accountability. I'm all for helping people, but there's an accountability that comes into play. And what you had here in the early church is what? Accountability. And if you don't believe that, go to 1 Timothy 5 and see what you had to do as, an, as a widow to get on the church's role. It was not easy to get on the role of the church and be part of the daily distribution of, of food. It took a little bit of work. It took a little bit of effort as a widow to get on there. You had to be 60 years old. You had to have raised your family. You had to have, you have, to have no other male person to support you because in those days you couldn't women couldn't work um, you had to minister to the saints it wasn't just a free-for-all but when, when if you had a home and they needed to put somebody up you opened your home you took care of the saints you did charity work yourself you listen I'll tell you what now nobody qualified today you mean you actually you actually expect me to thank you for helping me out it's a right I deserve this and one of the big fights you see happening in our society is this whole groups of saying, I, I have a right to whatever. You don't have a right. You don't have rights. But in the early church, they would pool their resources. And one of them, Joseph, surnamed Barnabas, son of consolation, what did he do? He had a piece of property in Cyprus and sold it. And took the money and gave it to the apostles to distribute to the needs of the saints. He didn't he might have inherited this land. He didn't need it for something. So he went and sold it. And this is sort of a good good PR campaign. So what do you have in Acts 5? Well, Ananias and Sapphira, right? And uh, they saw what was happening. You know, what would happen is people would bring their money in and lay it at the apostles' feet. So Ananias and Sapphira thought they would do the same thing, right? They said, you know, we got a piece of property. We're going to sell it for 5,000 denarii and we'll give it to the church. So they went and sold the property. They got 5,000 denarii and they're looking at that and saying, you know, that's an awful lot of money. 
tell you what, we'll keep back uh, 2,000 denarii and give the Lord 3,000, and that's good enough. After all, we're giving 3,000 denarii. Sounds good, right? Okay. They did that. What did God do? Kill them. By the way, it said they lied to the Holy Spirit, and then said they lied to God. That gives you an idea of the Holy Spirit is God. It's a good Trinity verse here, passage. And what's the principle in this? I don't need to read the passage. You're all familiar with it. What's the principles out of this? Right. Now, now here, here's the point. Just so you understand, and I'll go on record, I do not believe in New Testament tithing. Period. You give as the Lord prospers you. Right. Whatever God has laid on your heart, you give. That's what that's what it says in First Corinthians sixteen. It says that in Second Corinthians eight and nine. As God's prospers prospered each of you, you bring it, you give it to the Lord. Okay. All right. And Second Corinthians eight and nine. You do not find tithing given as an operative principle in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it was a tax. It was the national tax of Israel. And you were required to do that. That's how you funded the temple. That's how you funded the priesthood. That's how you funded the civic government of Israel. It's through the tithes, which, by the way, were 23 and a third percent, if you figured it out. There were 23 and a third percent. There were two tithes. And then there was another tithe collected every three years. So about 23 and a third, that was the tax rate. And you were required to give that. that if you were an Israelite, that was a required giving. But in the New Testament, it's all, what has God laid on your heart? And in this particular passage, God does not strike Ananias and Sapphira dead because they did not give him 10%, or they did not necessarily give him all. Why did he strike them dead? Because they lied about it. They wanted to make the church think that they were giving all of it, when in fact they were holding back part of it. Now, was it okay for them to hold back part of it yes, and keep sir. it? Yes. What it says here, it's in your power. If you want to do it, that's fine. God doesn't care. God's not mad because you didn't give him the full amount. God was upset because you said you sold it for the, you gave him the entire amount when you didn't. Mm-hmm. You were trying to set yourself, it was playing the hypocrite, trying to be something you weren't. And how did God deal with that? Yeah. Now remember back in the second week, first week, we talked about how Satan attacks the church? Remember the first way he attacks the church is he does what? Sin, right? Just a little bit of sin, a little bit of deceit. And here's the point. Ananias and Sapphira promised God, or at least they determined in their heart prior, I'm going to give him this. They didn't. But they made a public show that we were giving it all. Now let's say let's let's go let's let's think about this a little bit more. Let's say you say, you know, this year I'd like to give the Lord five thousand dollars in giving, whatever that is. I'd like to give him five thousand um, dollars. and you only give you're only able to give him for circumstances forty five hundred. Are you falling into this trap? No. No. Why not? Because maybe something happened, you just didn't have that other five hundred. Well, you've, you've said you want wanted to. to. You didn't mm-hmm. say you were you going didn't. live. You and you didn't make people believe that you did something you 
didn't do. God wants you to give to him because you want. You understand that? God wants you to give him something because you want to give it to him. Not because you have to give it to him. What kind of relationship would a man, if you think about a relationship with your spouse, why, why, why do I, what makes um, Donna preparing meals for me so wonderful for me? Other than she's a good cook, but she wants to. Not because she has to. Not because I don't demand it because I'll beat her if she doesn't. She wants to. Actually, I cook better than she does, but don't tell her that. All right. She can't hear it, so that's good. Um, the whole point is, if somebody loves you, and they're doing something. Why do you want them to do something for you? Why do you want them to give you something? Because they have to? No. No, it's because they want to. What do you think God wants? You think God wants you to say, well, you know, if I don't give this to him, he's going to beat me on the head and something bad's going to happen to me this week, so I better pay my tithe. God says, I'll keep your money. I don't need it. I don't want that. God loves a cheerful giver. What has God laid on your heart? What has God enabled you to give? And what has God laid on your heart to give? Mm-hmm. And if you are, you don't, I want to say if you're mad when you give it, you might as well keep it. Keep it. God doesn't want your money that bad. He wants you to do it because you love him. Mention this, this particular chapter and the society is pretty indelible to me. Uh, around two and a half years ago, when I gave my testimony, Jim and I used this chapter to show primarily the consequences of deception and lying and so forth. And that that was the impact more than anything. Else. I mean, when you look at what how harsh this was, you just wonder, you know, how how simple God I mean could just judge that and just spend most of your life in that. Sin, you know, deceiving and lying. And that was the point we're bringing across by his sermon and my testimony. It's deception. Something. It was really something. Ananias and Fire were killed because of deception, not because they didn't give God enough. And Peter says it was yours to give. If you wanted to keep it all, you could have kept it all. There, you know. But don't lie. Don't don't make yourself out to be something you're not. Don't don't shine people on. Be real. Be a person of integrity. Um, could you tell me, I kind of know, but could you tell me what really is covetousness is? Covetousness is wanting that which belongs to someone else. Mm-hmm. For nothing more than just wanting more. And that's why giving is such an antidote to covetousness. You know, and the New Testament says you give God what you want, how much you want, when you want. It's a matter of the heart. It's between you and God. Um, I believe some operative, other operative principles should come into play. One, it should cost you something, right? If I'm if I'm if I'm if I'm Bill Gates and I make fifty billion dollars a year, I don't know what he makes, and I give God a tenth, I'm not going to miss it, right? 
I mean, stop and think about it. If you make $100 million a year, you give this guy $10 million. You know, I can be pretty comfortable on $90 million. I don't know about you. I could probably do that. But I'll tell you what. If you make $10,000 a year and you give God $1,000, that's a little tougher, isn't it? It's cost you something. So one of the questions that I've had to ask myself and really come to understand in giving is if I give God, if I'm giving to God, but it costs me nothing, am I really giving? Is it furthering his cause? It might be furthering his cause. I, you know, there are some people that could give God 10%. You know, that that's a good chunk, but they don't miss it. So they're furthering, if they're furthering the cause of Christ. But have they really given? But he doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our money. But but in their heart, are they really given? You got to give till you miss it? I'm saying you're giving, whatever you give, whatever you give should cost you something. David in in First Samuel no Second Samuel twenty four First Samuel twenty four one of those he was yeah the guy said here yes I'm going to offer these oxen the guy said here take them Dave said I'm going to pay you for them said no you just go ahead and take them Dave said I'm not going to offer God anything that doesn't cost me something if it doesn't cost you anything to give something if I if I'm if I'm a multimillionaire and I give my wife a two thousand dollar diamond ring has it cost me anything. Oh shoot! You know that's 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 petty cash, right? That's petty cash. But you know what? If I if I'm if I'm living, if I'm living just just barely above the line, just able to pay my debts, and I give my wife something of that value, what does it say? No, no, I really love her. Now, wasn't that also no, the difference with Cain and Abel? He, he no, Cain and Abel. Cain knew what God wanted and didn't give it to him. Cain knew that God required a blood sacrifice, and he said, "Ah, eh, these veggies are good enough. He'll take them." God want look, folks. Look, all it's saying here, bottom line is, giving is a thing between you and God, in which you say, "You know, God has given me everything." Period. He's giving me my life, my health, my my ability to think, my possessions, everything. And he has asked that I show that appreciation by giving a portion back to him. How much did I want to give him? How, how much do I appreciate it? And and is and, and I think one of the one of the major I'm just saying one of the majors is. You give until it's going to cost you something to give. You know, say I can either go on a nice vacation or I can give this to God. I can either buy a Humvee, a Hummer, or I can give this to God. I had to get her in there. I'm going to buy the right. Hummer and give to God. <laughs> <laughs> all, all I'm saying, all I'm saying is, you buy a Ford yeah. instead of a Hummer. I'm not saying that either. I'm just saying, does it cost you something? What are you giving up for God? Um, easy. Understand the context. It's all about context. Malachi is written to Jews, um, and you got to understand what is the what was going on in Malachi's time. In Malachi's time, Israel had come back from the the captivity. They had reestablished the um, temple. The temple was back 
serving the people. And, and if you go to Nehemiah, you really get an understanding of this. What Nehemiah did is he reestablished the, te- the temple worship, reconsecrated it. The Levites were required to do what? They were to run the temple, which means they could not be growing grain in the fields. So how do you support one-twelfth of your population? Through the tithes. That was what it was for. And what do you find happening in Nehemiah 13? Nehemiah goes back to Susa. He comes back after a few months, and where are all the Levites? Well, they're out in the fields. What are they doing out there? Well, you're not giving your tithe. So they had to abandon the temple to go back and earn a living. And that's when Malachi wrote. He's writing at that same time. And under the Levitical law, under the Old Testament priesthood, if you did not give your tithe, you were robbing God. That was required. It was national tax. It was required to be given. And that's the whole context. And not only that, but in that same passage, Malachi blasts him saying, you know, and when you do give things to God, you're, you're, you're going through and getting, you're getting the sheep that's got the lame leg. You're getting, you're giving him the worst. You're not giving him the best. You're just finding the worst. And so the technically, did it cost him anything? Well, this thing's going to die in the next three days anyways. Let's give it to God and get some credit for it, at least, you know. Maybe we get some, you know, a thing for, to put on our IRS tax form that we gave something to the Lord. It's junk, you know. We'll give it to him. The whole context, I think, goes back to the context. In that context, under the Old Testament law, you were required to tithe. That was that was not a given. It was required to support the Levitical priesthood. It was required to support the temple. That was part of you being an Israelite. But they whoop us with the 10%, but you said it should have been 23 and a third. 23 and a third. You, it was. It's 23 and a third. There was a Levitic, there was a tithe that went to the priest. Mm-hmm. All right. That's mainly the, that's one most people think of. There's another tithe that went to support the national feast days and the national festivals of Israel. And then there was a third tithe given every three years for the widows and the orphans. All right. So when you work it out, it's about 23 and a third per year that they were required to give. It was, it was compulsory giving. It was taxation, folks. Yeah, it was taxation. And, and pardon? How did the church um, um, today, you know, churches and buildings and stuff, you have to pay for the lights, the gas, yes. all that stuff. So it should be based on. People don't give. You, you turn the lights off. It's still it's based on free will. <laughs> Your building is beyond the it's, it's on. It's. it's I'm just saying, look, folks, I'm saying, I believe, I'm just looking at the text. That's all I'm trying to struggle with. What does the Bible say about it? When you, when you look at this concept of tithing, it's taxation. And people say, well, Abraham gave a tithe. So that means that there's, they always gave tithe. Well, who did they give it to? One time. He did. On one time, he gave a tenth of the top of the heap to Melchizedek. Was he, did he go back every year giving him another tenth? That was a one-time event. Where he gave him a tenth. That's it. Who would, who do you give him the t- who prior to the prior to the establishment of Israel and the temple? Who would you have given your tithe to? There wasn't anybody to give it to. Well, I give it to God. Well, what's he going to do? What God needs your grain? He needs your animals. So you saying that if, the, if, if going back to the lights, gas, and water, all that else, if they do not give their tithe and the offering out of the offerings. Well, okay, you don't believe in tithes, right? Offerings out of the chip, and if it's not, 
God will provide. God does not need individually. Yeah. Yeah. God does not. God does not need. Yeah. God does not need. God does not want me to give because I have to. He wants me to give because I want to out of a heart of gratitude. And you know what? There, Even if you don't give with the proper motive, God still honors your giving. You know, because like all of us, do you give with a pure motive all the time? None of us probably do. But. All right. So what we did here is we caught up a little bit. All right. So I have to catch up a little more next week. and Before long, we'll be all caught up. It's time to go already. So. All right. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for being here, for teaching us. And thank you for your provision. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.